You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. to the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast with your host, Nick Bat. The Prime Minister of Sweden visited Washington today and my tiny little nipples went to France. And Bruce Nolan. Yo, brethren, what up with thee? Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. Along with me, as always, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. That's right. And we want to say welcome and hello and nice to meet you to everybody who is listening to us for the first time as we are one of the new shows that has now been able to come on board with Buffalo Rumblings. And Bruce and I, I believe, are both overjoyed and incredibly excited to be joining the biggest, best, and one of the longest-running Bills Online fan communities that exist for all of Bills Mafia. Bruce and I have been doing some Bills podcasting here for the last couple of months, We recently got the opportunity to come on board with Buffalo Rumblings, and so that was an opportunity that we thought about for about two seconds and then decided to take advantage of. And uh, we're really, really glad to be alongside all of the peers that we have who are putting out podcasts on this station and amongst all the other Buffalo Bills fan podcasts and media podcasts that are out there. We truly live in an environment for Bills fans, which is an embarrassment of riches, something we've said multiple times, both Bruce and I on Twitter and on our previous podcasts. But all that aside... Please give us a follow. I am on Twitter again, at NickBat, N-I-C-K-B-A-T. At Bruce Exclusive. And you can also follow us a little bit at Clee Bills Backers, C-L-E Bills Backers. Bruce and I are both out of Cleveland, Ohio. Diehard Bills fans who are living in exile. And we are part of the Cleveland Bills Backers bar, which we helped found in 2018. If you are ever in town or ever around the area on a Bill Sunday, please check out the bar. Come by, hit us up. We would love to see you, and you should come see the awesome space that we've put together. If you haven't seen it previously because this is the first time you're hearing about it, head over to the CLE Bills Backers Twitter handle and look at the media, and you can go back and find all the videos and the photos of the awesome stuff that we did to that space, which was an unfinished bar basement whenever we got a hold of it that is now a bill's kingdom fit for bill's dad and bill's dads everywhere so and we would love to have you uh come by and meet us sometime and, and hang out with us in person for a game so we can all either suffer or celebrate together what we want to talk about today for our first podcast with all of you wonderful listeners is Something that is an important part of what is going on now during this portion of the offseason, and that is the bottom of the roster. The bottom of the roster for the Bills right now is full of guys who are potentially going to be making this team in one of two fashions, and potentially both, depending on, you know, as the season goes on with the movement between the two. And those two things are primarily as special teams players and as practice squad players. Now, there's a little bit of nuance and philosophy that I think go into figuring out how teams put these things together. Because the special teams players, the core special teamers, there's really only four or five specific positions outside of the kickers 
who are performing a specific special teams role game in, game out. Other times people are maybe moving around a little bit or because of injuries and the bottom of the roster churning with guys being cut and then signed week to week, different bodies are coming in and showing up and having to play on teams all the time. Simultaneously, the practice squad is kind of your first line of defense when injury hits, right? These are guys who you want to have at your disposal so that they are up to speed with what you're trying to do. They're up to speed with your culture. They're, up, they're already in town. They're up to speed with your playbook. And you can toss them in to an active roster Sunday and hopefully not find yourself incredibly far behind. That is my basic understanding of how we approach special teams as well as practice squad. Am I in the ballpark on that, Bruce? Absolutely you are. So with special teams, you have two different traits that you're going to look for, two different trait sets. The first is translatable traits. These are people who play a position, who also play a position on special teams that requires them to do the similar or identical things. For example, if you have a defensive end, who is that's their core position, and they also are on field goal block, those are similar traits. The things that you need to do on defense translate easily to the things you will do on your role on special teams. Same thing with offensive linemen. If you are a left guard by trait, and then you are also a left guard on the field goal team, these are very similar things that need to be done. So you have those, but then you also have the inverse of that. People who have inverse traits This is where you get into special teams, specialty positions, gunners and jammers specifically. So gunners and jammers could be populated typically by skill position people who are in the bottom. So when we talk about fourth running backs, sixth wide receivers, fifth defensive backs, fourth safeties, these people like this, they're typically gunners and jammers, right? And so the gunners obviously are being the people who are rushing down to cover the kick, or the punt. Jammers being the people who are preventing them from doing those things. You just got jammed. Steve Tasker famously was one of the greatest gunners in the history of football. Recently, you know, Kasim Osgood for the Chargers was one of those people. Slater, Matthew Slater from the New England Patriots. These are people who are well known for their gunning abilities. Gunners have inverse traits. And what I mean by that is you have to be able to have the ability to be sudden like a wide receiver, to run routes, right? To give the jammer opposite moves and be able to break away from his coverage. But you also have to be able to tackle. So you have to have traits of a wide receiver, but you have to tackle too. Then on the inverse side, you have people like jammers, right? Okay, so you have jammers, who have to be able to mirror and have footwork like a defensive back. But they also have to block like an offensive player. So gunners and jammers are hybrid traits. They have inverse traits. You need to have traits of an offensive player with traits of a defensive player. And so when you get to the bottom, sometimes you have players who are not the best wide receiver who end up making your team. Why? Because the person who was a better wide receiver didn't possess the inverse traits necessary to fulfill the role you'd like him to fulfill on special teams. Great example for the Bills roster. TJ Yeldon might not make this team because Perry might make it instead of him. That's a possibility, even though Yeldon very, very clearly the superior running back. The question is not, is he superior running back? I think we probably all know at this point he's a superior running back. The question is, If you think about it mathematically, would you rather have someone who's 60% of a running back, but only 10% of special teams? Or would you rather have someone who's 40% of running back, but 60% special teams? And those are the things that you have to debate on the bottom of this roster. Yeah, And, And plus, specifically with the running back position for the Bills as it stands now, how many running backs can we carry that don't play special teams at all? Right. Because we've got LaShawn McCoy, who doesn't. You've got Frank Gore, who doesn't. You've got TJ Yeldon, who doesn't. And you've got Devin Singletary, who hypothetically doesn't. What's the possibility of Devin Singletary being told, suck it up, rookie, you're going to play special teams? Absolutely, it's a possibility. The question is, can he do it? 
Because remember, what are Devin Singletary's trait? Is Devin Singletary a height, weight, speed guy? No. Devin Singletary is a vision and contact balance guy. Both of those things don't super translate well to the skills I just said as being a gunner. A lot of these gunners are people who lack some of the more nuanced ideas of their positions, but have fairly decent height, weight, speed, right? They're fairly decent athletes. They're just not refined at the position or they lack some of the skill sets of the position. Maybe they're a wide receiver who just really is bad at, just has bad hands. That's a possibility, right? You have all the traits. You're like, okay, he can, he can run around. He just has terrible hands. He's always had terrible hands. Well, we could make, potentially make him a gunner, right? We, there's a, there's a skill set to work with there. And it's not like, oh, well, you suck at your main position, so I throw you in there. There are specific traits that make you better or worse as a gunner or a jammer. And these things are not something you just blow over. I think everyone just assumes it's going to be McCoy, Gore, Singletary, Yeldon, and those are going to be the four. That's it. And I'm not sure that's necessarily true. And those positions are going to have problems. You and I have talked about previous podcasts that if it is those four, that's going to put more pressure on the bottom of other position groups to make sure those people are better gunners and better jammers. These are things that have to go into deciding whether or not you put somebody in that space. Now, on a traditional punt... There's two gunners, right? One on either side of the line of scrimmage. On a kickoff, how many gunners are typically on the field or people who have that specific skill set? Because you've got a kicker and 10 other guys who are running down the field to make the tackle. Are all 10 of those other guys essentially some version of a gunner? No, not really. Um, Typically, the people on the ends are. Typically, the people on the ends are, but as you get closer to the middle, sometimes you get end up with the little bigger bodies because you have to combat the bigger bodies on the on the kickoff team, on the kickoff return team, excuse me, that you have to combat the fact that you have fullbacks coming down your throat and you have tight ends coming down your throat. If you put nothing but DBs on the field for kickoff, you're going to get steamrolled. So what are some of the other... So we, we just spent a significant amount of time talking about gunners and jammers. In addition to that... And you can give me some of the basics that we would know off the top of our head as it stands normally. What are the other special teams core positions that every team is concerned about filling on their roster? So long snapper, kicker, punter are the three specialists, as they're called, right? People who do only that thing. The rest of these people, it's important to note. Gunner, jammer, these are not specialist positions. Up back on a punt, right? Your personal protector made famous by that phrase made famous in common NFL vernacular by Tim Tebow at the New York Jets, right? But those are not specialist positions. Those people have to be able to do other things. But the three specialists are long snapper, punter, kicker. Usually your holder is not a specialist either. They are either your backup quarterback or they're your punter. You know, a lot of people, depending on if you get injured, you might have backups to that position as well. But those are the three specialists, right? And we all know those people's their job, right? Main difference between a long snapper and another snapper is the position of your head when you're snapping. So as a general rule, long snappers, it's a different skill set because your head is ducked, you are down, and it's a little bit like throwing an accurate pass through your legs, which is completely different than just being a center and snapping the ball. So that is a specialized skill set. Being a long snapper is not the same as being a center. You can't just plug your center into the log snapper spot and expect it to go well. It won't go well. Now, I've always been a little bit curious about the long snapper position because the long snapper position, I agree, is a specialized skill. You have to be able to accurately and consistently snap to punts and field goals without any mistake every single time. Okay. Now, I may be taking that for granted. I would sometimes assume that there is another guy on the team who does have translatable skills to play tight end or defensive end or linebacker or whatever, and could also be the long snapper. Yet, the Bills, specifically with Reed Ferguson, and many other teams, I believe, are carrying exclusive long snappers. You want to know why? I do want to know why. Because one screw-up costs you a game. That's why. It's worth the roster spot 
to go from 90% success rate to 98% success rate. That's the reason why. If you have someone full-time devoted to just that thing, you can just check that box and go, okay, how many bad long snaps did you see last year? I don't even know. Exactly. You don't even remember them because it happens so incredibly infrequently. The reason it happens so infrequently is because it's a specialist. If you put a linebacker there, it will happen more frequently. And after the first or second time it happens and you don't get your game-winning field goal, nah, we're done. Yeah, the appetite for fans to put up with that for very long goes pretty pretty. Low. And the appetite for coaches to have everything go the way you want it to go, and then because you skimped out on a roster spot to put a backup linebacker in there, you screwed it up. That's why. Okay, that's fair. Now, aside from the actual delivery of the football, some long snappers can be pretty good coverage guys, right? I, I don't know about Reed Ferguson, but John Dorenboss... Uh, from a couple of years ago was a guy who I think we consistently saw in on tackles on punts. One of the other reasons for that is people don't have a tendency to cover up the well. You can't touch the punter, him. right? So, I mean, there's a penalty. so he gets a free reign straight. I mean, the shortest distance between any two points is a straight line. The person who is closest to the punt returner when the snap goes off is the guy who snapped the ball, <laughs> and you're not allowed to cover him. So. Yeah. Okay. Now, is being a really great tackler and being a long snapper, like having both of those together, does that make much of a difference at all? Or is it truly just, can you deliver the ball? If you can deliver the ball and then sit on the field, uh, it would cross legged and suck your thumb for the rest of the play. That's fine. As long as you can guarantee me, there is never going to be a bad snap. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So I am curious about the up back because I have seen Marcus Murphy be the up back. I have seen tight ends be an up back. I have seen Tim Tebow, who's obviously a very unique specimen, be an up back. I have seen fullbacks be up back. So I've seen all these different positions play as an up back. You also are, according to my video game experience, the most likely person to catch a direct snap and fake a punt. So is there anything aside from being the guy who yells the snap? And then is the last line of defense if somebody gets through to try to block a punt and potentially being the guy who receives a fake. Is there anything else going on with that position? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes that's a protection call. So because the long snapper has his head down, focused on the snap, say you have, so you mentioned earlier that there are typically two gunners on a punt. And sometimes there are two jammers across from you and sometimes there are four jammers across from you two jammers for each gunner so that's based on whether or not you are as a return team in a punt return formation or a punt block formation and sometimes you'll see those jammers you just got jammed squeeze in at the end of the snap count to try and rush the punter right the person who's responsible for making sure that everyone gets a hat on a hat there is typically the personal protector because the long snapper's got his head down. He can't see all the way out to the ends, right? And there's no quarterback. And the punter's too far back for you to be able to hear the cadence from him. So the personal protector, in a lot of cases, is responsible for protection. Now, in this case, there's not complicated blitzes going on. There's no stunting or complicated blitzes, you know, fire zone blitz, you know, a, a dog blitz or something like that coming from a punt team. That's not a thing that happens. So it's not overly complicated, but it is still something that's important to make sure you get right. And is there anything aside from the knowledge and the intelligence to handle the protection call and then the blocking responsibility that comes with being the personal protector? Is there anything else that's on that person's plate or any other skill set you're specifically looking for? Yeah, I want them to be able to tackle because typically they're going to go right up the gut. So that person is almost always more athletic than your long snapper, right? And they're going to run straight up the gut, right behind the long snapper, or sometimes right around him, right, on their way. They, along with the two gunners, are the most likely people to get there quickly, in a hurry. So I need them to be able to tackle. So ideally, whenever you are the special teams coordinator for a team, and you are basically, as far as the coordinators are concerned, you're the third wheel, because the offensive coordinator gets all their say. The defensive coordinator gets all their say. And then we've got, yeah, a little uh, special teams coordinator over here in the corner. Yeah, he's on the team too, right? So 
the special teams coordinator, I think always, in my opinion, had such a challenge because week after week, you're typically working with different guys because that last linebacker gets cut and then another safety gets brought on because of an injury. And so the safety who you were using in special teams formations is no longer available to you because you can't risk him getting hurt. You got to use this brand new guy or you got to grab somebody else from around. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly is going on and how the special teams coordinator is prioritizing what they need and maybe what they would communicate to a general manager about that, especially during this time of year, whenever the roster is being built. The onus is on the head coach and whoever is in charge of the 53 to weigh the special teams coordinators input in a lot of franchises. That's not something that gets weighted at all. You'll, you will take what we give you. I want a hot dog. I want a milkshake. I want potatoes. You'll chips. get nothing and like it. Right? What we have less what we have left over after the offensive and defensive coordinators have gotten their guys, you're just gonna make it work. You will take it and you will like it. You'll take it and like it. And you will be grateful for the opportunity. <laughs> and that's unfortunate. Because a lot of those fourth running backs that you just absolutely had to have, Mr. OC, aren't gonna see the field except on special teams. Most of their snaps are going to come via special teams. So you got a chance to pick TJ Yeldon as your fourth running back when maybe you should have picked Perry as your fourth running back. Because TJ Yeldon might not see the field as a fourth running back, but he'll definitely see the field as a gunner. And so that's on that's on the franchise to make sure that they're paying attention to the special teams coordinator. In addition, there's a reason why John Harbaugh got a head coaching job as a special teams coordinator. There's a reason why Dave Taub is always kind of batted around as being a head coaching candidate. It's because special teams coordinators have to work with what they're given and they have to be good teachers. Sometimes you hear franchises talk about this when they hire an offensive coordinator. Oh, you know, he's a good teacher. Chances are, if you're a good special teams coach, you're a good teacher. Why? Because you have to be able to get someone up to speed quickly because they're constantly churning the bottom of that roster. You have to be able to get people up to speed quickly and make them work within your scheme. And so if you're a good special teams coordinator, you're probably a good teacher. And if you're a good teacher, that has a tendency to translate to other things. So a lot of people kind of raise an eyebrow when John Harbaugh got hired as the Baltimore Ravens coach. I think he's done pretty well for himself. Special teams coach. And I think we've missed that a lot of times, especially in today's NFL with the, oh, well, you're the hot new OC, so here be a head coach. Some of those things, just because you're a good coordinator doesn't mean you're a good coach. Some of those things aren't translatable skills. However, your ability to teach things, to speak in a way that will be digested well and be able to be absorbed quickly and be able to absorb efficiently and to be able to manifest itself on the practice field the same day, the next day, is an important trait in being a good special teams coach. Also happens to be a good trait in being a head coach. One of the other things I think it's talked about a lot whenever people are talking about players who are signed, that they're brought on to quote unquote be a core special teamer or that they are a core special teamer. So I think that when Lorenzo Alexander was signed before he had his breakout sack season, everybody thought of him as kind of a special teams ace, right? We've signed safety linebacker hybrid Mo Alexander. We've signed running back Cinerice Perry, which we've talked about several times. Julian Stanford, Dion Lacey, these are guys who, when people talk about the likelihood of them making the team, a lot of times it's a because of their special teams ability and the way in which they contributed to special teams in 2018. How many guys does a special teams coordinator want to have that might be like the quote-unquote core special teamers? Not the kicker and the punter and the holder and all that kind of stuff, but more so those guys who are playing a significant role in coverage and blocking on the special teams plays. I mean, ideally, you would want anyone who doesn't start to be able to play special teams, right? But that's just not the way that the world works. So if you're a special teams coach and you have two gunners you really feel good about, and those gunners can also jam, that would be amazing. That's not necessarily always the case, but that would be great. And then you have some bigger bodies, not offensive linemen bigger bodies, but tight ends and linebackers, right? People like Lorenzo Alexander, 
people like Patrick DeMarco, Patrick DeMarco, right? These people are the core special teams. When I say core, I don't mean core from a, from a, a psychological standpoint. I mean, core, like closer to the hash marks core, right? So those are the people, these are your upbacks. These are your people on the ends of the lines of scrimmage on your punt team. These are the people who are the ends of lines of scrimmage on your punt block team. These are the people who are on your field goal team. And these, are the, you know, so the, these are the things, right? And so those people, ideally, I mean, you love to have, you'd love to have five. You'd love to have five or six that where you're like, okay, I feel good. I feel like they're fine. And the more things they can do, the better off they'll be. If you have someone who can gun, but can't jam. Ghost jam. That hurts them. My connotation has always been that when we would talk about a guy being a quote-unquote core special teamer, this is a guy who's going to be on the field during field goal attempts, during kickoffs, both receiving and kicking, on punts, both kicking and receiving. That was always my connotation. Is it likely that you're going to have more than maybe five guys who would be able to play somewhere in a meaningful way on all of those? Field goal kicking is an exception to that rule. Because field goal kicking is basically just linemen and tight ends. That's basically it. And so the people who are gunning and jamming, right, they're, they really have very little place on your field goal team. You can field goal block team. There's usually a defensive back coming screaming off the edge to try and block a kick. That's typically what they are. But as field goal block team, sorry, a field goal kicking team, it's basically just linemen and tight ends. So basically what you have is punt block team, field goal block team, punt team and punt return team, kickoff return team, and then kickoff team, right? So you have a lot there, but one of them, you got to kind of got to rule out for any, any, but your big bodies. But if you had someone who played a core, it was a core special teams player. They better be able to play all the rest of them. All right. Okay. So we, we talked about it briefly and I, I have two comments about special team stuff that we've, that we've kind of been circling about. First of all, is that yes, John Harbaugh was a special teams coordinator, also, best coach in Bill's history, Marv Levy, was a special teams coordinator. Now, I'm not trying to – I'm always a little worried about throwing out stuff like that about the early 90s Bills because as Bills fans, with that being our golden era, it's so easy for fans, especially WGR callers, to get wrapped into, oh, this is what we did in 1991. That's what we need to do in 2019, and then we will have success. And you can say, they'll say that with such, you know, such confidence. And We're going to run the J-gun. God, yeah, really. God love it. Jim Kelly is going to be the quarterback's coach because if we just continue to hitch our wagon to Jim Kelly, bad things will not come. Yeah. So, anyways. So, interesting fact that not only John Harbaugh is a guy, but I think that that was one of the things I had heard about Marv Levy whenever, you know, and he was a retread coach too. I mean, it wasn't like it was his first rodeo, so... You know, take that for whatever it's worth. But I think that one of the things people said about Marv was that he was very good at working with players from all over the place because he had to work with players from all over the place in order to to staff the special teams that he was responsible for. One of the other things that I remember people used to say, and this is this is mostly like adults that were around when I was a kid that I would hear talk about the Bills, is that Marv would say that special teams was one third of the game. And I, I don't know that I really agree with that. I think that it's it sounds good, and it, I understand why you would say that, but I, I don't think that's really fair. Now, simultaneously, we're spending an entire episode of talking about how you cannot neglect it, or if you do, you do so at your own peril. So I guess I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth, but do you have a particular opinion about that phrase that special teams is one-third of the game or whatever? Yeah, it's absolutely dumb. What did you say? <laughs> there's my There's my... <laughs> There's my opinion on that. Special teams is not a third of the game. Special teams is enough of the game that if neglected can cost you a game. One of the great things about football and specifically pro football is that the supply of games is so minimal that every snap counts. There are baseball fans who don't start watching till September. That's a real thing. There are basketball fans that don't start watching till the playoffs. Playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs? If you miss one game in the NFL, you might miss the turning point of your whole season. 
because of how few games there are. And be, that's one of the reasons that it became so incredibly popular is that everything matters. They basically own an entire day of the week, the NFL does. And there's a reason for that. And now they're going to own more. They own Thursday nights and Monday nights. And so special teams is important enough that if you neglect it, it can cost you a game. It might cost you two games. And if it costs you two games, that's the difference between you being a number one seed and not making the playoffs. And that's a huge deal, but it's not a third of the game. By snap count alone, it's not a third of the game. So a about a third of all the points scored are scored on special teams. A little bit under two-thirds are scored on offense, and about 4% of them are scored on defense. So if you're just talking about a points standpoint, oh yeah, it's a third of the points, right? But it's not a third of the plays. And that's the important thing. It's not a third of the plays. And if special teams was really a third of the game, then complete and utter equality would happen on roster decision-making across the board. Yeah, that's a pretty clear indicator that it's not. Right. And the fact that you don't have your starting running back covering punts, you have your fourth string running back covering punts, that tells you right there it's not a third of the game. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, we just talked about how a special teams coordinator is lucky to have five. Lucky to have five core guys, right? Or five guys who are their the guys who make up the leadership and all that stuff of their of their special teams unit who they can rely on play in play out. So, yeah. Okay, beating that one to death. My other question for you, hearkening again back to the 1990s Bills, is you did mention Steve Tasker was an incredible gunner. And Steve Tasker's a guy I have a soft spot for. He's that he's the perfect Buffalo guy, small, scrappy, you know, makes a name for himself, kind of doing the stuff that nobody else is good at. Blue collar, blue lunch collar, pail. lunch pail, all of that stuff. <laughs> all he, of the adjectives e- we love. Everything. Steve Tasker. Absolutely everything is Steve Tasker. Steve Tasker also blocked a lot of kicks. You know, I, I, that's actually a story that my dad told me one time whenever we, I was just a kid or maybe I, I don't even know if I was. Uh, yeah, when I was just a kid, my parents ran into Steve Tasker at a grocery store in Buffalo and he had just blocked a kick a couple of nights before against, I believe he said, the Houston Oilers. And he said, oh, does it still hurt? And my my uh, dad said Steve Tasker pulled up his sleeve and you could see the imprint, the indentation in his forearm skin of the laces of the football still over 24 hours later. So uh, my dad also said that for being a small guy, he was like huge. Like he was just just jacked, just jacked leg, like leg muscles, like, you know, it's just incredible. So anyways, my question about Steve Tasker was, can you tell me? What makes him so well-regarded as the quote-unquote best special teams player ever? What made him so great? You talked a little bit about how a gunner needs to have some of that wide receiver skill set where you can deceive the guy who's who's going to be covering you and blocking you, the jammer. So I'm sure that that's part of it. He also, I think, was a pretty darn good tackler. You're just answering the question is what you're doing. You're, well, you're answering the question during okay, okay, the asking do, of the question. Okay. So he, he has the ability to deceive the defensive back who's covering him, but not defensive back, the jammer in that circumstance. But there had to be other things that made Steve Tasker great. Yeah, Steve Tasker had the footwork of a wide receiver with the tackling of a safety. And that's what made him so great. And Steve Tasker, first off, abs- 100% should be in the Hall of Fame. So let's just start with that. If you're gonna if you're gonna put punters and kickers in the Hall of Fame, you need to put Steve Tasker in the Hall of Fame. So let me just chalk me up as a pro Steve Tasker in the Hall of Fame guy. So let's just start with that. But the skill set necessary to do that is so unique because it's such a hybrid skill set of wide receiver plus defensive player that it's it's just hard to find because these people grow up, these kids they grow up and they specialize. And they have personal coaches for their positions. And so then asking them to have a hybrid position and do something that a defensive back does, it's almost like having two-way players. You know, two-way players were pretty common in the 1920s, right? But now they're not common anymore. Gunners and jammers are basically two-way players. And that's what makes the skill set so unique. And the fact that Steve Tasker had the footwork 
and deception. He gave an interview in 2015 where he was talking about being a gunner. And he said, you know, I may only get six or seven cracks at this over the course of a game. He goes, so if I give somebody a move and it works, I can't use that again for the rest of the game because they're going to be expecting that. So now I have to give them a look that looks like the move I just did and then also have a counter move. It's almost like pass rushing. People talk about pass rushing with a plan, right? Where you go into the rep going, okay, I'm going to do this, and then he's going to think this, and then I'm going to do this. Like the book on your opponent. Exactly. So now we've introduced a whole other position that you have to underthink like as a gunner, right? This is what makes Steve Tasker so crazy. He approached it like a wide receiver, but with the mindset of a pass rusher and with the tackling ability of a safety. That's what made him great. And that's why you see these highlights and you realize why Marv Levy didn't use him on offense because he didn't want to waste him <laughs> and wanted to have him on more special teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's interesting. I think it's a lot of fun for Bills fans to remember a guy like Steve Tasker because not only was he great, not only is he ours, not only does he live in Buffalo and is he an ambassador for everything to do with the city, the dude truly was the greatest at what he did. And he's incredibly unique, you know? So it's always a lot of fun whenever you have something that nobody else has. I think we take a little bit of heat on it because everybody's like, well, what's the big deal, right? You know, the the people who would maybe say that he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame because of what it is. But the way that you just described it makes me incredibly admirable and respectable with what he achieved. Steve Tasker is my favorite Buffalo Bills player of all time. I think that's... And you probably can tell that by the way I get so jacked talking about him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, good. Well, I'm glad we got that in. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break before we come back and shift gears and start talking about practice squad. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is Nick Bat here with the Nick and Nolan Show, along with... Bruce Nolan. And we are going to go ahead and continue talking about the special teams and practice squad, kinds of things that general managers and coordinators and people who are in the personnel departments are trying to keep in mind as they are putting together their roster this time of year. So we spent the first half of this show talking about what goes into the perspective that you want to have as an organization when you're thinking about the special teams and what you want to have at the bottom of your roster contributing to special teams and how much focus you can put on that. Now let's talk about the practice squad because these are the guys who didn't make it onto the 53-man roster, right? And these are the guys who I think we all sort of take for granted as fans. We think of them as maybe this... uh, Here's actually what I think when it comes to the, the practice squad. When I think of the practice squad, I think of two different kinds of players. And this is not necessarily right. This is just how I always find myself thinking about it. There's two different kinds of players on the practice squad. The first kind of player is a person who I know nothing about, I will never know anything about, who will never see the active roster and just is is having a little bit longer NFL career than guys who got cut and didn't get signed anywhere. Not a very generous perspective, I, I acknowledge, and I don't like that that's true for them. I, I'm not rooting for that for anybody. That's how I think about that group of players. The second group of players that I think about on the practice squad are the camp darlings that everybody can't, you can't believe they didn't make the roster. And so we get them on the practice squad and it's kind of like a consolation prize for the fans. Well, at least, you know, at least he's not gone. He's not on the street. He's, we still have him. If we ever were to heaven forbid, you know, if we ever were to actually need him, he's still in the building. We can bring him up. Obviously not his desired outcome he wanted to be on the 53 man roster but he's on the practice squad he's still in the he's still in the building Tyree Jackson is a guy who I think and David Sills two undrafted un, uh, free agents who I think maybe sort of fit that mold Brandon Riley was a guy who I think actually didn't even wind up on the practice squad if he did it was only for a short period of time so those are the two things that I think about that's because I don't really have a whole lot of I don't really have a whole lot of an opinion about what I'm trying to accomplish with the practice squad, aside from some sort of insurance policy 
if the unit this, this player is a part of, if somebody gets hurt. So, educate me. Outside of the insurance portion of things, what is a team trying to accomplish with the players that they place on the practice squad? There's only two reasons in general why a team would put somebody on the practice squad. The first is they are extension of your bench. These are the people who you feel comfortable calling up to plug a hole. Giggity, giggity, giggity. This is in the bench extension of your practice squad. This is this is my insurance. This is your insurance. Okay, okay. Right? The second reason why you would do it is for development purposes. These are people you do not feel comfortable calling up to plug a hole. In fact, sometimes we will see the opposite happen. We will have a rash of injuries at a position, and then rather than go down to the practice squad to grab someone, we'll pull somebody off the street. And people will be like, well, why did you do that? Well, that tells us what they thought of the guy on their practice squad. They have him on there, but they didn't have him on there to fill a hole. They had him on there because they wanted to stash him there and develop him. Baby's not ready. Baby is not ready. He doesn't want to play with us. No, Patrick, he's just not ready. Right? And so because of that, when something happened to that position group, you didn't go because they weren't ready yet. Great example of this. If we were to put someone like Tyree Jackson on the practice squad and Josh Allen and Matt Barkley, God help us all, got hurt. No, God, please, no, no, no. And Micah Hyde had to come in as an emergency quarterback in the fourth quarter of a game. This does not sound like a fun scenario. Tyree Jackson would very likely not be called up to start. We would go grab somebody off the street. We would rather have somebody come in, learn the offense in a week, and start them rather than get Tyree Jackson. As far as the connotation of what Tyree Jackson brings. Obviously, he could prove us all wrong that he's right. that he's further along in minicamp and training camp. Sure. But- I'll give you an example of the type of scenario where this could happen. Because we like Tyree Jackson as a developmental prospect, but liking someone as a developmental prospect is not the same as liking them to fill your hole right now. That's what she said. <laughs> Those are not the same things. Great example, safety. If we had a bunch of safeties around, who are we going to call, Nick? Dean Marlowe. We're going to call Dean Marlowe sitting on the couch. Boy, Dean Marlowe was right there. Right? He, I, I highly doubt Dean Marlowe will make the team, but he'll sit on his couch, and if we need a safety, we probably won't go to the practice squad. We'll probably call Dean. That's an example of what I mean by having two different types of people on your practice squad. Sometimes you're like, man, you know, this guy's got traits, but he doesn't have too many. I'll tell you what I mean. This is the caveat. If he has too many traits, then you don't try and put him on your practice squad because in order to put him in the practice squad, you have to cut them. And if he's got too many traits, you won't get them on your practice squad. So your practice squad is for your deep sleepers, right? If you were running a fantasy dynasty league, these would be your deep, deep, deep sleepers, right? Somebody who you think there's a diamond in the rough there, but nobody else really does. You're looking for Aladdin before he went into the Cave of Wonders. That's exactly right. A diamond in the rough, right? (laughs) And so, so, you know, this is the two reasons why you'd have somebody on a practice squad. And so sometimes those two things come into conflict with each other because we want to make sure we have people on our practice squad who we can call up, who know the scheme, right? Who can do what they need to do on short notice. But sometimes that comes into conflict with the fact that we really want that position to be filled by somebody else. How many guys can we have on the practice squad? You can have 10 on the practice squad, but this year's different for us because of Christian Wade. He gives us an extra spot, which means we can have 11. So if we can have 10 players and then we have Christian Wade in our case, so he is the 11th player who is learning how to play football, not just running back. He's learning how to play football. So when you have that arrangement, what do you think the ratio is? And maybe there's no set rule. Maybe it just varies from year to year with what you actually have available. But what percentage of those 10 players do you want to be developmental guys that there's no chance in hell they're going to see Sunday unless, unless it really hits the fan? Or 
how many of those do you want to be the guys who are the extension of your bench? Is it 50-50 or does it just totally depend? It totally depends. And a lot of it's based on position group. So if you have two quarterbacks on your active roster, you probably want to have a quarterback on your practice squad. If you're one of those teams that carries three quarterbacks on your active roster, then you probably don't need one on your practice squad. So those are decisions that then trickle into everything else. So if you decide you're going to carry, if you decide you're going to carry an abnormal number of players at one particular position group, that can then bleed into who you have on your practice squad as well. So it's going to vary completely based on your own roster composition. I'll give you a great example. The Ravens, they're going to have a weird looking roster this year. And because they're going to have a weird looking roster, they're going to have a weird looking practice squad. Because from all accounts, the Ravens are completely remaking their offense around Lamar Jackson. I mean, Paul Johnson was there, for goodness sake, the Georgia Tech head coach, right? They may pull out the triple option this year. And so because of that, their offense is going to look different. They're not going to carry six wide receivers on their offense because, heck, they might only ever have two on the field at the same time. Like, it's just not, it's not likely that their scenario would look similar to the Bills scenario. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I mean, they might be carrying a lot of these, like, H-back kind of guys, right? Like these hybrid, fullback, tight end, running back sort of things. They could carry a fullback and four tight ends on their roster. That's a, that's a very reasonable possibility. Interesting. Okay, well, when we talk about the developmental side of the practice squad, how long of a leash do these guys have? What's what's the appropriate lifespan of a practice squad player who you're keeping around because of their potential? The diamond in the rough. I think as long as your arrow points up, regardless of how significantly the incline is, you get a chance to stick around. You see teams churn their practice squad over the course of a year. The Bills had Robert Foster on the active roster and then cut him and brought Can Phillips up and then brought Robert Foster back to the practice squad and then swapped him back up again. As long as the arrow is pointing up, you get to stay. As long as you're learning and progressing. If you're not, then they have nothing invested in you and there is no reason to keep somebody around at the bottom of the roster and on the practice squad who's not developing. There's just no reason to do it. Especially if you're a, a, a position player. You know, especially if you're someone like a running back or a wide receiver or a tight end. Now, if you're a quarterback, they might have a longer leash for you. But that, that crap gets churned all the time during the year. Every single week, there's transactions along the lines of practice squad stuff. And usually it's bottom churning because... We're going to take every opportunity to improve the roster, even if that means going from a practice squad player who wasn't getting it done to a practice squad player who we think might get it done. That's still a little tiny improvement on the roster, and that's why teams do it. Well, tell me this, Bruce. With the guys who are currently on the roster, I think when we think about like the last couple positions on our 53-man roster and on our practice squad, it seems like half of the practice squad or more every year is actually guys who got cut from other places. They weren't, they aren't guys who were in camp with us. They're guys who got cut in Denver or in Pittsburgh or in Cleveland or wherever. And then we brought them in and the same is true for the bottom of the roster. Sometimes the bottom of the roster is we'll cut down to 50 or 51 have two or three open spots and we might grab guys who were cut by other teams and bring them directly onto our roster. So I understand that it's pretty difficult to say right now what our practice squad might look like, but as you are looking at our roster as it stands now, aside from Christian Wade and aside from Tyree Jackson, are there any other players that scream to you, Ooh, potential practice squad development guy? Yes. Number one, Cam Lewis, cornerback, Buffalo. Not because he's from Buffalo and I'm a homer. That's not it. I mean, I am a homer. There's no question. Let's not let's not gloss over that fact that I'm a homer. But the reason I'm taking him is not because he's homer. Because I had a draftable grade on Cam Lewis. And I think he has traits, but because of the log jam at the position. And because of the one-year deals we have at the top of the position, 
they could look at him and say, hey, we might have room for him this year, but we might have room for him in 2020. EJ Gaines is on a one-year deal. Kevin Johnson's on a one-year deal. Both of them could be gone in 2020, and both of them are injury-prone. Which means now you have... Cam Lewis is not going to make the team over those people, but the people he'd be fighting against are people who are more experienced in special teams. And he might not be able to get up to speed to the degree that would make you feel comfortable keeping him on the roster over someone like Lafayette Pitts. So... Yes, he has skill. Yes, we want to develop him. But because of the realities of the position this particular year, maybe we don't have a spot for him now. However, I don't want to close the door on potentially having a spot for him later. He is a prime candidate for the practice squad for this year. The second person who I think has a lot of potential for practice squad is David Sills. And the reason why I say that is because his hamstring injury might keep him from showing the amount of data that you would want for him to make the team if we keep with six receivers. You might see flashes from David Sills in practice and in preseason, but you, because of his hamstring injury and because of the fact that it might nag, you didn't see enough of it to make you feel comfortable carrying him as the sixth receiver. But that doesn't mean he's not someone where, if you had injuries to the position, you would be okay bringing him up. He's one of those people who could potentially apply to both of the things I just said. Someone you would feel comfortable bringing in and having him fill a spot, and someone you want to develop. You combine that with the fact that his reps might be limited for him to give you the confidence to keep him on the team as a six wide receiver, that also screams potential practice squad to me. Okay, what about two guys that a lot of people are talking about as potential practice squad candidates who are draft picks in Tommy Sweeney and Daryl Johnson? Those two guys, I think, are people who, especially, you know, Tommy Sweeney with Tyler Croft's injury, I think the door opened up for him significantly. But prior to that, or even after Tyler Croft comes back, I think the possibility of a guy like that making it to the practice squad was on a lot of people's radar. And Daryl Johnson, just because he's so raw as a pass rusher, we don't have a ton of pass rusher depth. We obviously thought we saw something in him that we drafted him. You know, is he going to beat out Eli Harold and Eddie Yarborough and Mike Love? I mean, that's not the tallest task in the world, but he's also a seventh-round pick. Let's start with Daryl Johnson. Absolutely, I think he could be on the practice squad. I don't see him beating out Eli Harold, Eddie Yarborough, Mike Love for the fourth pass rusher spot. And he has traits. He is the second of those two things that I mentioned for the practice squad. He's not someone who you feel comfortable. North Carolina A&T and someone who's extremely raw as a pass rusher, that's not something that you would feel comfortable bringing him up and just plugging him in. But it is somebody who you think, well, he's got traits and we could potentially develop him. So he, he fills one of those, checks one of those boxes, right? It's a possibility for him. I would argue it's probable that if he shows anything that's worth developing at all, we will try and get him there. I don't think there's any chance he makes the roster. The second thing is Tommy Sweeney. I do not think Tommy Sweeney will end up on the practice squad of this team. And here's why. Number one, Tommy Sweeney is a plug-and-play tight end. I didn't say he's a plug-and-play tight end one, but you know what you get with Tommy Sweeney. Tommy Sweeney has a ton of experience in college, and doesn't have raw physical athletic traits that you would develop, which means it's very binary for Tommy Sweeney. Number one, is he a rosterable player or is he not? If he is, keep him on the roster. If he's not, then you would ideally like to put him on the practice squad to have him fall into that, hey, if something goes wrong, we'll just go ahead and pull him up as an extension of the bench like I talked about. But he won't make it there. Somebody else will get him and plug him in as a TE3. Somewhere. I do not think there is a circumstance in which Tommy Sweeney makes the practice squad. That's my hot take for the pod, right? (laughs) Is Tommy Sweeney is not going to end up on the practice squad of this team. Because either he's good enough to be rostered here, in which case he'll stay. Or he's not good enough to be rostered here, 
in which case somebody else will think he's good enough to be rostered there. But he doesn't seem to fit that nice middle ground that you really need to make it through waivers, but also have the traits necessary to develop. It just doesn't seem to be something where he would be a good fit for it. So here's a question for you. Is there a particular position on the team anywhere where a guy on the practice squad doesn't necessarily make sense? You can have quarterbacks, you can have wide receivers, you can have defensive packs, you can have linebackers. Is there a position that doesn't really make sense to keep on the practice squad at all? Yeah, specialist positions, long snapper, kicker, punter, because those are the least developing of all positions, and also that's opportunity cost. Would you rather have a kicker on there on your your practice squad, or would you rather have a third linebacker when you can just go pick a kicker up off the street and have him ready to go in three days? It just I'm not saying it's never happened ever. I'm saying it's uncommon and unlikely. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's fair. Well, let's take another quick break, and then we'll come back and uh, and wrap things up. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Thank you all so very much for joining us for this inaugural episode of the Nick and Nolan Show on Buffalo Rumblings. want to give a couple of people some special thanks for all of the help that they have given us and the opportunity to come on board with Buffalo Rumblings. Specifically, I think both of us would want to say thank you to Anthony Marino who is a Buffalo Rumblings podcaster, handles the Breaking Buffalo Rumblings. Uh, He's the guy who I think we interacted with initially and kind of got on our old podcast and interacted with us there and wound up passing it along to Matt Rich Warren, the editor-in-chief of Buffalo Rumblings. And Matt reached out to us on a Saturday morning to say that he had listened to our Draft Reactions podcast and was excited and liked it and wanted to offer us the opportunity to come on Buffalo Rumblings. And then I think... Probably 30 seconds after we got that message, after Matt slid into our DMs. Hey, girl. Hi. You got a phone call. I did get a phone call. From me. From you. (laughs) Saying, holy (laughs) So, um, yeah. I mean, we're just glad to be here, right? I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot else to say other than you and I, I think, love talking Buffalo Bills and love trying to... Talk about things maybe in a way that aren't always being talked about and talk about the things that take a little bit more nuance and understanding with what's happening both in the decision making of the organization and with the play on the field. So we hope that you guys enjoy this conversation with us as well. Please, again, reach out to us online. Let us know what you think of the pod. Subscribe, rate and review. Buffalo Rumblings on uh, iTunes and all that has been around for a while, but we are new. And if you like what we're doing... Leave a review and, and give us a comment about what you think. You can find me on Twitter at NickBat, N-I-C-K-B-A-T. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. And we are going to be back every week with new content during the offseason and when the season comes around. So if there's something specific that you want to hear from us, you have questions for us, or you want to just let us know what you think, please hit us up on Twitter. We would absolutely love to talk to you. And until next time... I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. 
all formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.